I don't think we had as, as, as much violent crime, I, I would say. Uh, there wasn't as much danger for teenagers. The small town feeling, idolized in a made-up Mayberry, dwindling in the face of a real-life murder mystery. And we had an office in Pilot Mountain, and we kind of went in there and brainstormed. And we started from scratch like it had never been investigated. Decades passing by at an agonizing pace, with memories surging back as an alleged killer's name and face were thrust front and center. Well, he drank quite a bit, cause, you know, but every time you see him, he's falling down drunk. A step in the direction of a final chapter. First, we go down a dirt drive. Haven't been up here in five years. Coming full circle to a dead end off a road named for a loop. It does make me feel connected to her, I guess, to be here. A woman returning to where her cousin was taken on a summer's day back in 1980, only to find that what was left behind had been purified. I'm Fox 8's Michael Hennessy. This is Murder in Pilot Mountain, a 40-year mystery. From above, Secret's Loop Road does just that, forming a distorted semicircle intersecting North Carolina Highway 268 twice. Inside the boundary formed by the asphalt are pastures, fields a mixture of green and brown, trees densely forming their own enclosures the forest floor shielded by their robust crowns. If you take a right off of 268 onto the loop, you'll pass one road called Granny Doll. Then you'll approach a second, a black sign exhibiting that it's a private road. It's called Groundhog Trail. If you take the right, the road changes from hard top to gravel and dirt. There's a small house on the right and thick trees on the left. They're pines barricading the innards of the woodland they configure, outfitted with timbered spikes jutting out from their trunks. They look like something out of a haunted forest. Ahead, other species of trees form what appears to be a tunnel as you approach. The shade they throw looks like a hole. But as you get closer, the road bends to the left and light reappears. It remains, guiding you on a straight line, still lined with trees until it opens up and suddenly you're surrounded by fields of brilliant green, thick grass. The area is home to more does than people. Wonder what this looked like in 1980. Bunch of deer back there. It's down this road that Rhonda Blaylock was once driven, to the tobacco barn where she was found murdered, having been stabbed and raped, discovered on August 29th, 1980. Four years later, after she got her license, her cousin Sherry drove herself down there for the first time because her parents had never previously given her permission. Yeah, and they never would let me. They, no, you don't, you don't need to see that. You don't need to see that. <laughs> 10 years went by, then 20, 30, 36 years after the first time she drove down Groundhog Trail. She goes back once more, this time with myself and my photographer, Chris, in tow. Just keep going and Try to see if there's somebody down here. It's only about a half mile long, but it's a slow roll. It takes about three minutes to get to the dead end. When we first drove by, we didn't see the barn where we thought it would be, 
but we did see some people and they told us we were at the right spot. We asked for permission to go down there from a woman living in the home attached to the property. We looked at an old picture and showed it to Sherry as she reached to the depths of her mind for what the area looked like more than 35 years ago. All right, so this right here is that building over there, the one with the tractor in front of it right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. This right here is where we're standing. And this barn right here would have been right here. There. Oh, okay. And that's what we had been under the assumption of. And you can see it's got, it's a yeah. traditional log cabin. Yeah, yeah. We were there. Sherry was there for the second time. But the barn, which served as a cover, camouflage on that day in August 1980, was not. At least not as it once was. I guess seeing the charred trees, maybe, has a little cleansing effect. <laughs> Just months after Robert James Atkins was arrested for Rhonda's rape and murder, the barn caught fire. The logs stood in a heap about 50 feet from the road. They were blackened, burned, organized as one would arrange wood for a bonfire in a teepee shape pointed towards the sky. Stones which were strewn amongst the grounds charred as well, leaves and tire tracks in the mud. It's March, the leaves are yet to grow back on the trees, but the flames must have reached to their heights. Trunks and branches also black, as the fire would have likely bombarded them for quite some time, judging by the state of the barn. And if you rise to the tops of those trees, you can see several miles of forest. About eight or so miles away, a steep stone summit stands above the horizon. It's Pilot Mountain. I just, I just wish that it never happened, more so than anything. This wish that it never happened. Being there on the wide open private plot, invoking thoughts that for Sherry had become few and far between, still, however, thoughts she's been bearing since before her 13th birthday. You know, where did he actually kill her? And was she, how long was she in fear for her life? And how long did she know? I don't know. Those questions, I guess, come up. More so when you're here than just at home. Oh, on the drive up here, definitely. Yeah. I mean, just thinking that the route that they took and the roads that they came on and what was her state of mind then and, you know, how, how much did she know? How much did she know that that was going to be her last hour or minutes or whatever it was? How was she dead in his truck or, you know, and, or did he kill her here or did he try to do something and she resisted or? She hadn't spoken to her cousin in 40 years, but something about standing on the solemn ground where her body was spotted brings her a sense of closeness. It does make me feel connected to her, I guess, to be here. So, especially, I mean, I don't think I've ever walked on this property like this. You probably just down yeah, and saw it and yeah, yeah I didn't get out, so, yeah. Was, um... We stayed on the edge of the road at first, but the longer we were there, the more curiosity, the inclination to tread closer crept in. I wonder, can we walk down to those logs and see? She or... didn't have any issue with it. Okay, though. yeah. <clears throat> Tentatively striding through the dirt and debris, now seemingly stationed on the spot where the barn once stood. 
Sherry trying to place herself in the point in time when her cousin was killed. Were they drinking? Was she intoxicated? You know, I mean, I just wonder. Because, um, you know, I mean, she was a teenager. And if he offered her alcohol, you know, did he get her drunk or drugs or what was involved? Ronnie Bowman. Ronnie Bowman wasn't there when the murder happened, but was nearby. I worked Mount Air Police Department for several years, and then I came to Stokes. At the time, he says he was living about a mile from Groundhog Trail and remembers what it looked like back then. There was no other houses up there, except you go to the end of the road, that house right there on the corner. These others were not here in that time. So it was just tobacco barns that was there. When we first knocked on his door, he told us he remembered the day that Rhonda was found and remembered it well, even down to the conversations he had. I think it was Clyde Seacrest, it's uh, the one that found her. He had, he had an odor or something, a strange one. As a law enforcement officer, he went to the tobacco barn that day, but it wasn't his investigation. Groundhog Trail is split by the Stokes-Surrey County line, and Rhonda's body was barely in Surrey. So Surrey County was handling this one. What do you remember about that scene, about what it looked like, that kind of stuff? Well, it's just two tobacco barns, and, and really nothing else was there. Uh, those buildings you see now was built after this. What he remembers about her body is right in line with what we saw on her death certificates, but with a bit more detail. She had been stabbed several times in the throat, face, upper body, upper torso. And he remembers what Swaim talked about with us earlier. It wasn't a peaceful little, it wasn't Mayberry. It wasn't Mayberry, 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 by any stretch of the imagination. The other murders that the task force had to look into in their early days. In a triangle area here, about a mile apart or less, there was three unsolved murders along about the same time, within a couple of years. That has been solved now. But the other two were still unsolved. But this one was a 14-year-old girl. And although the murders all happened within close proximity, this is the one that had the broadest reach. There's a big impact. There's no question about that. Because of her age and the way it was done, it was a big shock to most of us all. And it had everyone, including law enforcement, looking over their shoulders. They almost thought they had one person that was doing them all. Could it be him? Him? What about her? That that day, uh, we we started talking about it and you know guessing who it might be, and he had to know the area or he wouldn't have come down here. Everybody had ideas, of course, you know, and everybody suspected everybody, of course. In just another example of the small town everybody knows everybody feel, Bowman knew the Atkins family, thinks he rented homes to some, and thinks he even knew Robert James Atkins. Just another person asking, did they really, though? I, w I wouldn't sus suspect him. If you had 20 people there, 
I'd put rule him out the first one. And I was, I was in law enforcement a long time and a, and a private investigator for a long time. My wife gets mad at me, but we're talking about trusting someone. And I said, I trust no one. Today, Bowman lives in a different home. It just happens to be one of the original two on Groundhog Trail, the one at the dead end, the one closest to where Rhonda was found. He has no choice but to pass it every time he leaves his home and every time he comes back. Gives you a funny feeling when you drive by sometimes, just wondering what that kid went through. Just as his recollection of August 29th, 1980 remains vivid, the same goes for the day when flames engulfed the barn, crept up the surrounding trees and sent smoke emanating into the sky. If you'd been at Pilot Mountain State Park that day, you without a doubt would have been able to see the plume creeping from the trees about 10 minutes due north. We asked if the fire had intentionally been set. No, it was, it was accident. It was accident. And that's the barn where she was found? Yeah, <laughs> yes. He too, on the fence about seeing the barn being reduced to a bundle. Burn it down helps you forget, but keeping it helps you remember. So you have a mixed feeling there. Just a few years before the barn burned, another memory was branded into Bowman's brain. Met her a couple of times, but she would come up here. A terminally ill Lynn Blaylock taking a trip down Groundhog Trail en route to Memory Lane. Coming to a slow halt on its dirt and gravel, stopping where her worst fears began to be brought to reality the barn. Of course, she just wanted to come see where her daughter was last left, you know. I would do the same thing. Her daughter gone, her husband too. Her time was growing closer. Her words were isolated. And she was just standing there and she didn't have much to say. She just said, I said, well, I just want to come back one more time. You know, it brings back good memories, but it makes me sad at the same time. Lynn's niece, Sherry, realizing she too has a small connection to the Adkins family. The home where we first met happens to be near where Robert James Adkins' cousins say he grew up. Moser Road and Slate Road are the two Oh, that's that where you on. interviewed me. On Moser? Mm-hmm, huh. right off of Moser, Slate Road. That's where he was wow. raised? Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. wow. With daylight on the brink of running out, Sherry grabbed a fire-stained stone from the side of the barn, then a piece of metal that likely belonged to its roof, and popped her trunk, placing them inside. She plans to put the stone in her garden. As we prepared to say goodbye, a look to the sky. It was blue, some cirrus clouds sprinkled in. Those are the thin, high ones, mixed with some stratus, more solid, closer to the ground. But no rain, still. A rainbow appeared. It came and went swiftly, just like Rhonda's time on this earth, but perhaps a sign that Sherry's elder cousin, who once stood taller than her in family photos on holy days, never truly stopped looking over her. But it does bring back good memories of us playing together and being at her house and just lots of good times we share together. To see Rhonda's story told through pictures and video, 
to put faces to names, head to our website. That's myfox8.com. If you like the podcast, please rate on it, comment on it, let us know what you think. Tell a friend. Murder in Pilot Mountain, a 40-year mystery, was written and reported on by me, Michael Hennessy. Edited by Chris Weaver. Our executive producer is Kevin Daniels.